a good old boy Never meaning no harm Beats all you never saw Been in trouble with the law since the day they Good old boys I'm Mark Bog Beef And today we have a very special guest The RPG Pundit How are you doing, sir? Hello, I'm I'm good. <laughs> People, you should know about Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, and by the way, this you are an accomplished author. To type in RPG pundit on Amazon, we'll have the links. We'll have the links. You, you've sold a lot of books. I, we've we've taken a look at your books. They're very good. Well, I'll, I'll take this down a certain path. You'll see where I'm going first. So first off, like how, how many games of Dungeons and Dragons would you say you've DM? How many have I DM'd? Yeah, I mean, I mean, obviously not an exact number. Uh, hundreds, thousands. More? Oh, it'd be thousands without a doubt, because I mean, I've been doing this now for more than 30 years. Um, so yeah, yeah, it would be quite a lot. It's been, it's been like at least, what is it, 35, 36 years that I've been, that I've been DMing. So Robert Conquest is a writer. It's not, it's not super important. He had a law that said everyone is conservative about what he knows best. Um, follow that up. He says any organization, not, uh, Basically, the, the, uh, sorry, let me say, the behavior of any bureaucratic organization can best be understood by assuming that it is controlled by a secret cabal of its enemies. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You've DM'd this many games of this. I, I, I think of you, just taking a look at your background, there's a lot of professions or, or I mean, not even just professions, hobbies, there's all kinds of things. I've read this about um, one of these pipelines, when the pipeline went down, they they. Um, they said, well, you know, it, it could be started manually. They said, well, everybody that know how to do that manually, they've quit. I read about this, um, this, uh, <laughs> one of the last, one of the last places that produced CRT televisions. Um, they kept on going to like 2003, 2004. And they said like, they could have kept going, but the last guys that sort of knew how to, to operate the machinery and stuff, they just wanted to retire. And, you, there's a lot, of, there's guys that sort of keep everything running and if any kind of hobby, any kind of, uh, 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 business or stuff like that. And guys like you have sort of had, uh, you're, you're DMing thousands of games, your bit part, your, your, your uncredited writing on books. You're just kind of like everywhere. It, would you say this is true of yourself in, in this hobby? Yeah, I'd say I am. And it sounds to me like what you're suggesting is the um, kind of Atlas Shrugged scenario, right? That there's people that are just kind of abandoning um, the the core of the hobby because it's been subverted. Yeah, well, I mean, I mean you, that, that's a great way of putting it. So my, my very next question was basically that, uh, you know, there has been an entry, like, you know, they say entryism of uh, – Let's derange leftists in in this hobby and in, in this in, 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 like I want to, to to park on this this before we go there. Second, could you give a small pitch for like wh what you like about D and D and like why people should consider playing it? I don't mean specifically D and D, of course, but that is you know a, a generic term for this 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 hobby that you love. What why do you love it? Well, for me, I I love. Dungeons and Dragons, because it creates a certain type of experience when you do it right and when you play it long enough. And I mean playing a specific specific game long enough. Now, it, it, the experience is a little different if you're a player or if you're a DM. Both of them are, are 
experiences I've had, and they're very good experiences. Um, some people prefer one to the other. I prefer being a DM, but but you know, some people definitely prefer being players. And it's what's it's what's called immersion. And when you're playing a character, at first you're just making a character that is um, you know something a product of your own mind. You've created this personality. Um, you know, if you're a beginner, it might be just kind of an extension of you or something like that, you know, um, or it might be someone very different than you. If you're, you know, a creative type, you think up a character, he's got this, this or that personality and you're playing him, right? But as you're playing him, if you're doing your job right and trying to get into the head of this character and the DM is doing his job right, and he's trying to make the world a real world, a virtual world, a place that is not a story being told. And this is where people get it wrong very often, where they're like, oh, well, it's just a, a game where you're telling a story. No, no, it's not meant to be a story. It's meant to be a virtual world, right? In the same way that like, you know, some of these uh, MMORPGs have a, a, a huge world in them, right? And there, there's this um, there's the factor, the good and bad factor of that the world is like affected by all the, the players in it that you can't really control the other players. And here in RPGs, you have a selected group of people, your gaming group, right? They're the only players. And then there's the DM that controls everybody else. And his job is not to force you down a road. It's to create an open world that is a living world where things happen even when your characters aren't in it and that the, the people in it are not there to serve your characters. They're their own beings. And if you get all that just right, then there comes a moment where suddenly you're playing your character and your character does something and you had no idea he was about to do that, right? He, he suddenly <laughs> yes. become alive. Yes. He's taking on a life of his own. And that moment is immersion. And that's that's an incredible experience that you have. And with a, with a DM, the same thing happens where you suddenly, an entire event can happen that you as the DM didn't realize was about to happen. And then it does. And it's not because of something the players did. It's because it's something that happened. It's like this accumulation of events that happened before, plus things that the players were doing. And suddenly the world is alive outside of your control. And you've become, you know, the term that they that the deists used to have in the Age of Enlightenment, the 18th century. You've become the clockmaker god. You've put all the pieces in place. And now that world is alive and you can just watch it. And it's happening, right? So it, it brings you into um, a, a Tolkien had this quote about doing fantasy, writing, writing fantasy worlds. He said that it is it is the creature um, making an homage to his creator that just as, you know, the Lord created the world, you are creating this world of imagination in a similar way. Right. And so it's it, it becomes an act of, of um, reverence and awe. You know, and I think that that's what you do with role playing games in a way that perhaps is even more, um, more true than with like telling a story. Telling a story is a bit different. There, you're preserving something that is supposed to be set. You know. Anyway, yeah. sorry, sorry. Go on. Yeah. No, no, that, that's that's yeah, that, that that's perfect. I, I totally agree. You know, when you write stories, there's you know, there's kind of like that the Joseph Campbell, the hero with a thousand faces, or whatever. But, you know, when you by, by the way, I didn't even notice till I asked you that question, but uh, you know. My friend here, Merrick, uh, we've we've played tabletop RPGs. One of my other best friends we've had on the show, and you know this isn't a huge part of our lives, and we aren't the kind of people that you would assume like that. Like the other guy that we have on the show, he does like ultimate fighting stuff. But uh -huh. uh, it, it, yeah, I, I totally agree. Like what you said, like you know, there are, uh, the last character. The, immediately, I started thinking about. I had a character named Gubio, and he was a thief, and I didn't care much for him, <laughs> and I, I didn't think. 
uh, he just seemed to be like, well, this is this is the guy that I've got for this adventure. I, I'm going to forget about him soon. He'll be dead. And, you know, and he came up big and saved the world. And it was not the whole world, but, you know, he, he, he said he said the party's bacon. But anyways, I just this was important to establish that this isn't just something, um, you know, this this is something about this, by the way, it's lost in fiction today, written by woke people is that uh, it's different when you care about something and when it's important to you. And because a lot of these these people that, that these that I, I, I guess where you know where I was going with this was that uh, you know your your hobby now has a lot of people that weren't there before. Yes, that the, hey, these, these sort of woke SJWs, uh, etc. Yep. <laughs> how how these now you as this artist you've written these books you're you're part of this community you're doing all these things I don't know so we, you know we've talked to people from all different walks of life that have this sort of same scenario happen you know at work or their hobby or whatever this this sort of uh you know this this these people whatever they are um you know whether whatever their reason they're there they cause them problems uh, in has this happened to you oh absolutely it has happened to the hobby it has happened to people into in the hobby and it has happened to me personally and this has been going on for a very long time you know um in in kind of geek culture so to say People tend to think that the first big um, culture war battle that happened was Gamergate, right, with video games. Um, mm-hmm. But actually, like six months before Gamergate, there was Consultant Gate, and Consultant Gate happened in tabletop RPGs, and I was one of the protagonists. It was, it was a situation of when Fifth Edition came out, Fifth Edition D and D. I was one of the the consultants on Fifth Edition. I, I worked. Um, side by side with Mike Merles to create the fifth edition rules. And by the way, that, that, that is incredible. Uh, and like, uh, so I, I really like number two uh, and I didn't like three or four, five, I felt was a big step up, but, uh, that's a sensation, but also that, I mean, that, that's a big deal that you, you worked on D and D edition five. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it was. Yeah. And when, when the, the leftists in the gaming hobby found out about that, because I was already very well known at that point for being a critic of censorship and political correctness in the in the hobby, um, they started a movement to try to force me to be like fired by wizards, which was impossible because I was on a contract when I did the work and I wasn't. And by the time it was published, I already wasn't on that contract. Or for wizards <laughs> to publicly denounce me, or for D and D fifth edition to be cancelled, you know, because of my involvement in it, you know. And they went just all over social media doing massive brigading and, and trying to push for um, this to, you know, for, for, for everybody to know that D and D fifth edition, you shouldn't play it because it was created by the RPG pundit you know, and stuff like that. Uh, well, uh, okay. Two questions. So number one, your, what was your crime? Like, you know, did you, um, you know, did you participate, did you, uh, uh, you know, participate in like, uh, uh, you know, were you in a, a, a Nazi, a biker gang or something? But number two, uh, was this a lot of people or just a few people? Was this like, you know, the majority of your hobby, the majority of your friends, when you go to the, the hobby shop, was it like that? Or what, you know, how many people, was it a few or, or many? Okay. So to answer the first question, do you want to know what my real crimes were or what the ones that they accused me of were? <laughs> the thing is, I, 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 these, they, there never really is much of a crime. So I assumed you weren't in, in, a Nazi gang, or you didn't, you know, you didn't show up to a hobby shop wearing a swastika, or there, there was no real thing. Let me let me tell you something first. Okay, the 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 
the real crime was that I was mean to them on the internet, right? That I would make fun <laughs> of pretentious story gamers and of these, you know, ridiculous games that they were playing and their claims that it, these games were superior to Dungeons and Dragons, right? Stuff like they had an RPG called Nicotine Girls, which was very popular with the kind of lefty crowd, which was about you would you would play. It's like, you know, like Dungeons and Dragons, except that instead of being an adventure going to a dungeon, you're a teenage girl working at a fast food rec restaurant, going for a smoke break in the alley outside the fast food restaurant. <laughs> and that's, that's the game, Nicotine Girls. I swear, I'm, I'm telling you the truth, right? Um, and then there's I, a little, I, Sorry? Wait, I got I got to know more about this. Like, did a vampire attack you in the alley or no, was no, it just no. like... You talk about your shitty lives, about your boyfriends and things like that, you know, and, and it's basically, it's meant to be, I guess, a kind of like commentary on the struggle of the working poor written by people who have never worked and have never been poor. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That is, that's, that's yeah. something. Yeah. You know, there's a bigger discussion. Perhaps we'll get into, I'll never mind. Forget, continue. I'll leave it's that like, for that's later. like the female version of those German gamers, like street super simulator, 2015, right? Like where you just, you're simulating doing, doing your everyday task. Yeah. I mean, there are, there's, there are worse examples. Don't let me don't, uh, don't get me started on their game about the Holocaust. You know, like <laughs> <laughs> anyway. The point is, uh, I would I would mock them about this, right? And they had also previously to me, they had tried to blacklist a couple of authors to get them banned from websites or fired from work, and in some cases they'd succeeded. Um, there, oh man! Uh, a guy who had written a book is his name is James DeBurro. De um, He's he's a socialist, but I never held that too badly against him because he was, you know, a free speech type of guy. And he was also a guy that he really liked, you know, um, he he was very much a sexual libertine, you know, and this is what they didn't like about. Him, right. So he wrote a lot of books about RPG books that had stuff about sex. And, uh, you know, the uh, the left never met heterosexual sex, at least that they ever liked, you know, that feminists hated <laughs> this guy. And so they tried to to have him banned. They falsely accused him of being a rape advocate. Yeah. So that was how, how how bad they were about this. Right. And so, you know, so I had condemned them for for trying to engage in censorship because I'm a believer in absolute free speech. Um and so, so that really, was, did they that get this fellow fired? Sorry? They get this this fellow who was a socialist. They got him fired. Well, they did get him fired off of a couple of things, right? But he's also a freelancer, so he's he went on. He's produced other products, and he's still mm -hmm. doing quite well right now. I as I understand it, he has he has this new Twitch show, I think it is about which has like um, people playing Dungeons and Dragons naked or something. <laughs> I don't know. He used to be <laughs> on Inappropriate Characters, which is my YouTube talk show with with. It used to be me, him, and a guy named Benjamin Satanis. So uh, where we talk about news and controversies in the RPG world, uh, but he actually quit that show in a in a in a huffy rage because uh, he felt I wasn't being pro lockdown enough during COVID. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but he's still so, a good one. He's still yeah. absolutist on free speech. So I don't give a crap what his his you know admittedly stupid politics were as long as he's about to be fair if if the D, &D community can't be explicitly pro not going outside nobody on earth is allowed to <laughs> yeah really that's a very yeah. good point <laughs> well 
you know, like uh, you know, that, that thing where you say where he's he's very different from you politically. You know, that that that's funny because you know that's not that that wasn't really a problem until just lately, right? No, that's like, right. You know, you, know, you know, you don't really get into uh, uh, the, these kinds of like at least I didn't. You know, when you're at the hobby shop, whatever. Uh, you know, I'm not really asking somebody what's their feelings on you know climate change and, and stuff like that. And to be honest, it would would not matter. Uh, you know, as as long as we have this sort of like, uh, you know, uh, this this agreement, the uh, like you were, you know, the the free speech thing, you can do business with each other if if everybody agrees on that, you know. Yeah, it used to be I never had any idea what like except for you know the the gamers that were my friends outside of gaming, I might know their politics, right? But otherwise, the people I sat down with at the gaming table. I had no idea what their politics were. I knew that they were some degree of nerdy, but that was about it. You know, I didn't know who they voted for. But now mm. um, the problem is, too, is that it's on the left, right? That the left, having become anti-free speech, um, it used to be that they would, you know, if you were a leftist or rightist, if you believed in free speech, then you would talk to the other side. And it wouldn't matter what, whether the, a, a person was from the other side or not if you were doing something that had nothing to do with politics, right? But now... That combination of being anti-free speech and political absolutism means that a guy like James DeBurrow is like a white rhino. He's on the on the edge of extinction. There's hardly anyone like him. It's like him and Bill Maher, right? Nobody else. You know, like they're <laughs> they're super rare. Most of the left, if they think that you deviate from any of their beliefs, uh, then then you are not just to be shunned, but possibly to be like gotten rid of, right? Oh yeah. So. So anyways, that, that, that was, those were my real crimes is that I was mean to them on the internet, but then they started like inventing stuff out of nowhere, right? Like there was one guy, Bruce Baugh his name, who was, uh, he was one of these game designers. He took, there's this very popular RPG from the seventies called Gamma World, which is the, it was like the first post-apocalyptic game. And it was always a bit tongue in cheek and, and really kind of weird and gonzo and goofy, right? Uh, but a mm -hmm. lot of fun. And he was the one that did the D20 edition of Gamma World. And instead, he took out anything amusing about it and turned it into an ecological allegory, right? And, and then about the importance of creating more conscious societies, right? So he, like, completely <laughs> used the game's title as a skin suit to make an RPG about his political ideas. And so I just savaged the guy, right? Um, and so when, when Consultant Gate came along, he said... Oh, that the RPG pundit, I heard that he had been opposed to the use of, um, you know, to the to the uh, language that was put in the in the, the player's handbook saying that, you know, your characters could be uh, gay if they wanted to. You know, like he said that he was he, he, that RPG pundit is homophobic, you know, and this is especially ironic because I wrote um, before fifth edition, I wrote an RPG called Arrows of Indra, which is D&D in an Indian setting, basically. And not only does it feature like third gender characters, but there's one on the cover. And it's the first RPG ever published that had a transgender character on the cover. And I love that, you know, the right wing shitlord is the guy that gets to say that, you know. <laughs> so, I, I, I take it you don't get too many brownie points for that. Not from the left, no, no. <laughs> and I never used to make a big deal about it until assholes like this guy started inventing stuff because he could look through, you know, the things I write, and you you could tell that I'm, you know, I'm I'm kind of, um, I'm conservative on the values of classical civilization, but I'm not conservative on like social or sexual or religious values, you know, like I'm I'm not that kind of a conservative. And and they want to paint me though as though as I was uh, 
you know, um, Benito Mussolini or something, you know, or, <laughs> or uh, well, Francisco Franco would probably be a better example. What with me being Latino. So this guy, how, like, if you were going to revive something like Gamma World, like, how, how did this guy go about doing? Was it like public domain and he was just able to do it or did he have to buy no. the rights to it? No, he got a license. He, he was actually, he didn't publish it himself. It was published by a subsidiary that got the license from Wizards of the Coast because Gamma World was used to be from the old TSR, right? Who owned D&D and now it's Wizards of the Coast who owned D&D. And mm-hmm. Gamma World was one of the other products that TSR used to make. And the, the, this company got uh, the license to publish it and they got him to write it. Um, and I'm, I'm guessing, well, you know, by then it was already, this was, we're talking about like well before 2014 and, uh, you know, this is before fourth edition came out. So it was, it was probably around 2007, 2008. And you already had the fact that TSR Dungeons and Dragons was created in Wisconsin, you know, and it was, um, throughout all the TSR period, it was basically, owned, operated, and largely staffed by people from Midwestern America. And then when Wizards of the Coast bought it, they moved it to Seattle, and suddenly it was staffed and <laughs> owned and run by people from the left coast, right, from the the extremely um, left-wing uh, branch of society. And that, that being... something that changed the whole scene of the tabletop RPG industry, you know? With, with Gygax being like a, um, he was like a Jehovah's Witness or something. He was. Um, yeah. And so, you know, uh, that's that's just not, that's just kind of like the opposite of, of this this type of person, like you said, where they, they had moved it out there. Yeah. How was how was the reboot of Gamma World received? Did it, did, like, did, did it sell? Was it? No, it was, a, it, was, it was pretty much a flop, you know, <laughs> for obvious reasons. Because if you're a Gamma World player, if you liked Gamma World in the previous editions, uh, you know, you liked the weirdness and the goofiness of it, right? Like that it was a, it was a, it was a post-apocalyptic game, but it wasn't meant to be misery porn. And it certainly wasn't meant to ever be about um, having some kind of a social reconstruction message, you know? Yeah. Have you ever seen, you've seen Goodfellas, right? Sure. Everyone's seen Goodfellas. Uh, Okay. So there's a scene in Goodfellas when Henry Hill's describing the relationship the mob has to this guy who, who, uh, who owns a bar, right? Mm-hmm. And in the scene, the guy the guy gets into debt with the mob, and they borrow money, they squeeze it dry, and they finally burn the place down for the insurance money. Like my theory about why these people do this is that, like, okay, somebody like him, you're going to take the the name of this product that has some value, and you're just going to wring every last little drop of money out of it and then discard it. Now that's just like what they're doing with other with these other products too like nobody every once in a while there'll be some D thing in the news where it's like uh, we decided that orcs are racist and we're going to change that like there's no way that the people who actually play D and buy D stuff care about that like they, they don't they don't care about whether or not people perceive the the orcs to be a representation of cambodian culture or whatever it's like but like this is a way for these people to have jobs like yeah, doing but, nothing. But see, that that isn't that what's what's weird is like it's it's not a profit thing for the company. It's it's like a a, a job program for these these people. No, it's going to hurt the companies. You're, almost, you're almost never right. You're absolutely right about this. With one slight correction, right? Is that um, now I'm going to tell you why left wing game designers are worse than the mafia. Right? <laughs> In the case of the mob, <laughs> they they 
bleed that bar dry and then they in the end they burn it down because the guy can't pay anymore you know and, and, um, and they do all that but they don't do that because they hate the bar right they do that because they want the money right uh the 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 people in charge of dungeons and dragons right now they hate dungeons and dragons they hate it as it exists and they've said so. they've said so in interviews they've said so in articles right um they've now declared just like yesterday, one of them has declared that the the era of adventurers going out to fight monsters and have dangerous adventures is over now. And what we want <laughs> is a Dungeons and Dragons where people are doing a different kind of adventuring of like exploring and and resolving problems that don't involve fighting. <laughs> like, and I'm like, who 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 wants that? Who wants that other than you? Right? Nobody. But that's what they want to do because they don't like Dungeons and Dragons. They hate it, in fact. It has always been their <laughs> nemesis. It's what the hoi polloi plays, right? And they, they're disgusted by gamers. They want um, to either have gaming cease to exist or for gaming to be turned into a nothing more than a constant propaganda tool for leftist indoctrination. And it's the same thing with comics. It's the same thing with video games. It's the same thing with science fiction and fantasy Everything that is a product of culture has to be transformed into nothing more than a vehicle for indoctrination or it must be destroyed. And so that's why they are worse. The same way that communists are worse than mafia, the D&D the, the left are worse than mafia. I hate to make another pop culture reference, but there's an old Simpsons episode back when the show was good where Marge like keeps writing letters to the cartoon company because the, the cat and mouse cartoons too violent. And, yeah. and she finally gets her way and they bring her in to consult how they could make the, 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 the cartoon better. And she, she turns and instead of trying to kill each other, they're, like, they're drinking tea and complimenting each other. And the, the children just all tune out immediately. They hate it. They absolutely despise it. The show goes off the air. The kids go by outside and play and do something else. It's like, it, 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 remind, it reminds me of that because, like, how can you bring someone in who hates, in essence, what the thing is about? Unless, I, I, I what, what is, what is, um, Wizards of the Coast, TSR, whatever, what are they thinking when they do that, when they hire these people? Okay. So, what's going on with Wizards of the Coast, right? Wizards of the Coast is now a subsidiary of Hasbro, which is a, one of the, oh, okay. the, the biggest multinational corporations in the world, right? Um, and they are they are just like every other big corporation, like Disney, like Netflix, like, uh, well, everything, right? They have been subverted by a process of entryism. So you had, you know, this is, this is something that started from like the 1930s, right? The Frankfurt School and then Antonio Gramsci, what he called the long march through the institutions, right? The, the only way he saw that the only way to defeat capitalist civilization was a multi-generational effort at, at increasingly indoctrinating successive generations of young people into their philosophy, their ideology, and then sending them out to intentionally subvert every institution and civilization. And, and that's what they've been doing all this time. So now you have the, 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 the peak point of that, which has started from the late 90s until today, of these people that have been indoctrinated in, in the most extreme form of wokeism, right? That they're practically Maoists. And they've been sent that they're the ones that are getting work first as interns and then as like low managers. And those low managers will bring in a ton of people that think just like them. And then they become middle managers and they're bringing in a ton of people that think just like them. And they're very good at, at looking like 
you know, these older, the older Gen X and whatever's left of the boomers that are like executives in these companies, they're all a little bit liberal, right? They vote Democrat and stuff like that. And these kids look like them. They're just like, you know, they think, oh, it's like the hippies, right? They were like the hippies back then. Well, these kids are not like the hippies. These kids are like the Maoist Red Guard, but they're hiding it, right? And then when they get in there, they go to all these boomers in the board of directors and they say, look, you're losing money here. You're losing opportunities because your product is full of racism and sexism, right? And you have two options. We can either accuse you publicly of being racist and sexist and homophobic, and you're going to lose money because everybody cares so much about that. Or you could do what we want. And what we want will make you a ton of money because what we're going to make is that your product is going to be more diverse because right now your video games or your Avengers films or your Dungeons and Dragons or Warhammer, it's only straight white males that, that like these things. So, But if you let us change it, then we're going to bring in all of these other people that are going to like it, that never that you never cared about before, but that are going to buy it in droves, right? It's just going to be full of, of uh, black transgendered lesbians who are disabled. They're, there's just hordes of them waiting to buy Dungeons & Dragons books, and you're going to make a fortune. And the boomers are like, oh, really? Wow. Right? And they went along with it. And so they just let these changes happen because they're being assured that this is what's going to happen, you know? And because the very initial books that are writing off of, or the very initial films or TV shows or whatever, are writing off the pre-existing fame of the product, which they the name that they've now hijacked, the sales are initially good. And so they, they go to the executives and they say, look, see, we told you so. This book sold more than the last book, and it's because we're more inclusive. So we have to keep going and being even more inclusive than before. Yeah, and they're going like, oh, okay, yeah, it seems, looks like it's working, right? And so then by the time they're in this cycle where the, where the products start to lose money, it becomes very hard because they say, well, you know, I think we should change. And the, and the kids go, uh, oh, I'm sorry, but if you change, you're a Nazi and we're going to tell everyone you're a Nazi and you're going to probably be fired from your position in the board, you know, and, and, and they hold them hostage. And, and it, it has taken years now. Uh, before some of these big corporations have started saying, well, we just can't do this, right? Because they, they even have investors that have been taken over, right? Investment firms like BlackRock and Vanguard have been taken over by the same ideological extremists. All of these are people who think that losing money doesn't matter. And that's like, that is poison in a capitalist system, right? Like if they're if they're suddenly saying, well, you know, it doesn't matter if we bankrupt these companies, what matters is we get our agenda out there. And suddenly they're not working for the profit motive that destabilizes the whole thing, but they don't care because their goal is to destabilize the whole thing. And, and the problem is going to be now when the individual stockholders start to revolt, that's when things are going to start turning around. And you see the beginnings of this with like some of the changes that have recently happened in like Netflix and Paramount and, and uh, Sony. And, the, the, you know, there, there are companies that are saying, well, we've got to stop this because we're going to we're just going to die if we keep doing this. Our company's going to be gone. Two things, I think. One is that on some level, they they do believe like when they say, hey, if you make if you make this product, it's going to sell like high cakes because they don't, they don't ever talk to people who are outside of their bubble. Yeah, yeah. They, every, yeah. Everyone that they know and interact with is 100 percent in on this religion. Other thing, I don't I don't know anything about comic books. Never, really, I never really read them or anything. But there's a guy called who had a YouTube channel called Bounding into Comics. I think I think his name is Zach, right? Yeah. And he he, uh, 
he talked about this stuff. Bobby, when I saw his videos, I don't know, back in the 2015, 16, whenever, uh, he had this really interesting thing where he said that they would, the same thing would happen with new comic books. They would get, you know, some woke guy to write The Flash. And what would happen is you they say, here's a new, there's a new version of The Flash. And the first, like, two issues would sell because everybody buys new issues and stuff. And then they, they, would, they would see it and, like, Ugh, it's crap. And they just sort of just kept reissuing like new versions of, of the comics. It just instead of having like you know, here's issue number one fourteen of the woke Flash. It's just like here's the woke Flash, and here's the crippled Flash, and here's the you know, Taiwanese yeah, Flash. That's an old old collecting thing where whenever there was like a a a new a new comic come out, like uh, you know, if like Cyclops got his own comic, like issue one, you go buy issue one because it's like a good chance to go up with money. That's one of the best explanations of that that I've ever heard. You know, the, the part where it starts out with the profit motive and then it goes into the, you know, the, they got you hostage or whatever. Like, you're not going to stand up at a, at a boardroom meeting at one of these major companies and say, like, I think we should tamp down with the, with the you know, diversity stuff. Like, it's, it's almost, you can't do that. But 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 the entry, that's perfect. I, I really like that that, that explanation there. I've, I've never heard that done right. And I know with the profit motive thing, like, I get, like, you know, because... Uh, it's funny because I, like I know what they're doing with with, the, with like the initial hook there. It's like uh, so the initial hook is always that, like okay, so men don't really spend as much, don't really spend a ton of money, and so you know the idea is that like well, if you can get out of just these like you know nerdy white guys and just open it up into a wider market, we could we could kick some ass, especially if we get buy, get some women buying because women bu- spend way more money. The thing is like women spend way more money on like body lotion and shit like that. They're not spending way more money on any of this other crap. Uh, they they don't want the, they they just have a specific couple. You know, they, women like spending lots of money on new purses and like you know all these these perfumes and stuff. But they're never going to want to to buy this kind of shit. <laughs> yeah, that that that's where the problem comes in. That they they create this idea. They say, well, the problem is you you they don't buy it because you never tried to sell it to them and you never made the product into something that they would like. Right. And so the assumption here, what they're what they're assuming is that or not assuming that's what they're selling, you know, what they're trying to claim. Right. What their claim is, is that if you modify Dungeons and Dragons enough or let's say Warhammer 40K enough or, you know, the Avengers enough that um, it would have that it would be uh, more appealing to women than women would buy it. Right. But but the problem is that there's certain things that are just fundamentally structured in a way that are going to be different. There's always been women who have played role playing games. The number of women playing RPGs has always been, you know, it's varied over the years. But let's say on average, about 20 percent, something like that, of all gamers were women, because there are certain women that that for various reasons will like to play in an RPG. But there's, you know, the majority of women probably won't. And the real answer is like, well, you know, you want to make sure that it's that it's being it, this is a nerd hobby and it's got to be for people who have certain nerdy characteristics. They might be male. They might be women. Odds are they're going to be men because men tend to have those characteristics more than women do. Um, and if you try to change it out of that into, into being something else, then you're going to lose all the men because their their claim was, well, you, the men will stick around and then you'll have all the women. Right. Or, you know. Uh, you'll have all the whatever the Puerto Ricans or something like that, mm-hmm. right? If you pander to the Puerto Ricans or to the to the Hondurans, you know you have characters eating breakfast tacos and arepas. 
then suddenly uh, you're going to have all these Latinos playing. No, I mean, look, I'm I'm living in South America. I'm 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 Latino, and uh, you know, uh, on on my mom's side, and every gamer, you know, there's a big gaming scene here. There are a lot of Latinos that play RPGs. You know what they play? They play Dungeons and Dragons. They want to play. They don't want to play. You know the the. Uh, role-playing game or something like that they want to play dungeons and dragons they want to play star <laughs> wars they want to play lord of the rings they want to play game of thrones they like exactly the same things that a white gamer from indiana would like you know it's exactly the same or that a white gamer from um from bristol would like you know it, it's the same stuff they want the because they like what they like, right? That's what the game, that's the type of personality the game is made for. And it's not about, you know, respecting the culture or respecting the gender or some nonsense like that. So the only thing that happens when you start to do that kind of pandering is that you lose your base audience and the people you gain are so tiny that they can't sustain it, you know? Yeah, it's, it's kind of like, um, you know, if you were trying to make a band and you're trying to get, get a, had it, when you had to get a drummer without rich parents, it's not going to go anywhere. Uh, or, you know, what I'm, what I'm thinking of is like, um, there, you know, there, I, I can't remember the name, but, you know, in statistics, there's this thing where it's like the, with the outliers. But basically, like you could like you could I could let's just say you could feasibly get up like uh, women to like 35, 40 percent of, of players. But you're not gonna like what what percent of DMs are you going to get to women like your vast, you know, because because of the outlier thing, I would mo- I would bet that the percentage of uh DMs that are going to be white guys, white nerdy guys is going to be really high, much higher than, than even the players, right? Well, that's, a, that's an interesting question. I'm not sure if the, the race of DMs would change much. And I don't know if there's ever been a, um, a statistic that's been done. Like there hasn't been a lot of demographic work done, but there has been some studies done about RPGs. Um, and uh, I don't know if it's ever been done on asking, you know, what percentage of just DMs are men versus women. But I think you're probably right that there would be um, maybe a lesser percentage of women that would be DMs, even representative of the total number of gamers who are men versus women. The interesting thing is that now, a couple of years ago, they did another study relating specifically to fifth edition of Dungeons and & Dragons. And a- according to that study the number of women playing D&D has jumped from 20% to 39%. And, and so that does seem like there is a growth in the number of women playing D&D, but there's a bit of a problem, which is that because of the way that, that, that these studies are being done and the people doing these studies, we don't know how many of those women, that difference in women now, are <laughs> who didn't used to play, but are now playing, or they're players who didn't used to be women and are now yeah, women. That's <laughs> yeah, they I, cast polymorph on themselves. We can't yeah. be sure. We don't know. I'm assuming that probably 5th edition, because 5th uh, edition was designed, and I know this because I was the one that invented these goals, right, along with Mike Merles. It was designed to be very easily accessible to new and casual players. It was the exact opposite of what third edition was, which was designed for what they call system mastery, where if you knew every little rule and if you read every little book, um, your characters would be way better than anybody else's character. In fifth edition, if you're a relative newbie or if you're really experienced, the difference is going to be much lower in how much better or worse your character is going to be. There's much less opportunity to game the mechanic. And so there isn't something that rewards obsessive gamers over casuals, right? And so that, 
allows for more new players to come in and it allows for people that would be long-time casual players to come in. People are going to play it, but aren't going to play with the same dedication or same intensity or same frequency as a, as a full-time, really serious, hardcore gamer. And so that effect probably did cause more women to, to start playing because I think that women are more likely to be casual gamers um, than to be, you know, dedicated, like the type of gamer that plays eight hours out of every week or something like that, you know? The rise of, of the streams of people playing Dungeons and Dragons, and it, that, that this is that's well, become well, a big thing. It, it, well, are, are, well, it, it, you, he has a thing about that. Are they really playing? But by the way, when we when we played, there was probably like five, six people, and there was always at least one woman. But uh, now he's bringing up. Well, an well, well, let me let me finish what I was going to say. Like you could, I, I could see how. The, that change, like where, where you have people who are streaming themselves playing D&D would lead to attracting more XX chromosome women because like you're, you've changed what you're doing from playing, you know, the game in like the 1970 sense to like you're doing a performance. And like that is something that women do enjoy more, more, uh, yeah, more than men, at least I'll say. Yeah, well, it's the reason why there's way more women on Instagram than men, right? Because women like <laughs> taking more photos of themselves and other things that they're that are in their world and showing those to other people because that's part of the socialization process among women, right? The socialization process among men is a totally different sort of socialization process that doesn't involve this kind of competition of 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 showing your yourself a, or your lifestyle or, or things like that it, it's other it's about cleaving an orc in twain like, yeah. like logic or power or or uh competition in the physical sense or things like that right so so in a if you're like the best player in a game that's a very man thing to want right for women mm -hmm. being the best player in a game is not all that important but but you know being able to show uh, you know, on on Tumblr to have a, a drawing of your character and look at my cool, you know, um, half elven, half demon uh, enchantress or something like that. Then that that is a more feminine quality of thing to do, right? So so there are things that have changed in the modern era that have uh, probably yes made the game more appealing to women as well. And certainly one of them is is that if you're on a a Twitch stream and you get to show yourself playing the game to other people in the same way that other, you know, someone else might do pictures of, of themselves in makeup or pictures of their kids or things like that. You know, there are some fields like, um, like military history or something where it's like, really, there's really just like almost zero women to do it. But D and D has never been like that. I mean, you had even people like Margaret Weiss and stuff. That were um, they were always there, but they're just yeah. they're just less. Yeah. They're just they're just the numbers are less, but but they are there. I, I want to okay. So one of, one of the most interesting things about this stuff they bring a certain set of morals and stuff. The the going back to the progressives when they show up to town, you can really see that in something like uh, they, they really have to lay it on thick in something like D and D because it, it, it's so dynamic and stuff. So I'll just start out by asking: Is is there? I heard a rumor. I heard a, a thing that. Um, they wanted to install or that they, they wrote something that a, a wheelchair accessible dungeon was floating. Did this happen? Yes. Um, so this is the thing, right? There, there was, uh, this all started with a person 
who was not working for Wizards of the Coast, right? Because there are you can do third-party products in Dungeons and Dragons, right? They have this oh. kind of license, and and that you can produce um, products for fifth edition D and D that are like compatible, and that you can present them as such. And you know, obviously, Wizards gets a cut, right? But but you can also even like theoretically do free products, and as long as it fills fits in within a certain code of conduct, you can put the logo of it being compatible. Um, and put it out, right? And so this one person who is, you know, a leftist activist uh, said that D&D is not inclusive to disabled people. So they created this uh, this wheelchair, right? <laughs> Which I've I've nicknamed the magic wheelchair of diversity, right? But it's uh, it's like, uh, you know, it's meant to be this uh, adventurer's wheelchair for like disabled characters to go around. <laughs> The wheelchair, it actually breaks, you know, if you look and analyze it mechanically, as in like in the context of the rules, it breaks several of the rules that the wheelchair is like, has tons of potential special abilities, it lets you do better attacks, it lets you enhance your magic. And, and, uh, you know, it's basically means that anybody who's in the wheelchair is going to be a better and more effective character than anyone who isn't in the wheelchair, right? Like, so... You could imagine that you could have, like, if you had a bunch of gamers that were just about, like, maximizing their character's efficiency, they'd all be going around in the wheelchair at that point, right? <laughs> whether they were, whether they needed it or not. Um, oh, but it's but... especially silly in a game where basically you can heal any kind of injury that would leave you crippled, right? So, so this is... <laughs> I never thought about that. <laughs> yeah, this is obviously something that you'd only use if there's this belief that being disabled is a lifestyle choice. Like, you know, that does happen. Because there are like certain kind of extremists uh, that are... Oh, yes. There's an episode of Jerry Springer about this. Yeah, like, well, I mean, in, in the deaf community, that's famous that there's people, you know, the cochlear mm-hmm. implants, they can restore your hearing. And there's a whole section of the deaf community that's like, no, that should be banned. We shouldn't be allowed to do that because you'll destroy our culture, our special culture, right? And uh, but there are people that that say the same thing about you know being disabled in other ways that it's that it's got to be kept up, you know. And so like here, it's like anybody with a spell can restore you, and you're like, no, no, I'm going <laughs> to use the combat wheelchair instead. Yeah. And so they got to learn to do this for myself. Uh, okay. So now, okay. So that, hang, sorry, hang on, though, because what happened okay. after that is that Wizards of the Coast promoted that product because <laughs> they were being, you know, to be woke, right? To, to virtue signal and capture that virtue, they promoted it, and then they came out with an adventure uh, in one of their books called Candlekeep Mysteries, which is a collection of adventures um, that were all pretty crappy because at this point, it's all everybody involved is like. You know, the, the people that are making this stuff now are not the people that had anything to do with, with the D&D of the past, right? And they're, they're, they're making crappy product anyway. But they did an adventure in it that was a handicap-accessible dungeon, basically, right? That it was supposed to be, <laughs> that, that it was like wheelchair accessible. You know? ADA compliant yeah. <laughs> dungeon. Because you know that like the evil warlord or undead being or demon or whatever that creates a dungeon is really going to worry about it being handicapable, you know? Or you get your yeah the um you know the 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 great wizard Mordak is going to get taken to uh to to court for ADA violations that that's <laughs> that's that's very funny okay now that okay that's that's funny but now to getting a little bit more disturbing so I remember like um so, you know five E is is a great product I, I um I remember you know first getting the book and I was like wow this is really cool and uh the first part where I was like wait a minute. I don't like this was where I got to the section where it describes the palette 
And, you know, the paladin and the old stuff, there's something that's just sort of like, I, I don't know um, the, uh, and th- th- I think this is kind of like a, a you know, an important, uh, I will be a terrible person to, to explain it, but an important sort of trope and, and sort of any kind of masculine media is just sort of like the good protector, the knight, the knight in shining armor. Um, the term paladin, it comes from um, the, the, the the legends of of the of the the origin of France and the paladins were the 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 heroic Christian knights of Charlemagne, right? So mm. they were these these super religious knights that were blessed by God to fight the heathen, you know. And they were, yeah. you know, that that that's that's where the word paladin comes from. Um, and that's and that's what we've always that's always knew was a paladin. And then when they got to that section. They started getting really weird about the even the idea of like first off whether he need to be good and then like whether or not like good and evil like really are legitimate concepts. And th- this this is very very strange for this kind of this kind of product. Yeah, even even at the very beginning of Five E, there was some ideas that were being introduced <clears throat> that were, you know, uh, obviously had something of an agenda uh, to them, right? One of them was that, you know, that the pal- there could be paladins that were evil paladins or chaotic paladins and things like that. Now, in earlier editions of D&D, for example, in the, in the BCMI set of D&D, you had paladins and then you had avengers and avengers were chaotic paladins, right? So they were, they were, they were paladins of wrath, you could say, right? And rather than paladins of, of piety. And, and, but they were very clearly meant to be like the dark version of a paladin. Right. They weren't they weren't a paladin as such. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. And here instead, it's just like, well, anything goes. It's the same thing with like clerics where they say, like, you know, a cleric can be the cleric of any God or no God at all. You know, (laughs) like you have atheist clerics, you know. Um, And this was, you know, I took that to be kind of, you know, uh, your standard liberal ideas that were being that were being floated on. But they weren't a big deal because they were just one or two little things. Right. and I yeah. mean, different game worlds are going to have different stuff. I've always felt that the paladin was kind of superfluous because the cleric originally was meant to be that. It wasn't meant to be a priest. It was meant to be a holy warrior, right? And then they kind of turned the cleric into this pseudo priest, but that still also fights. But then they added the paladin. So, you know, it, it's it's kind of it's kind of silly in that way. Yeah. Did you ever you ever <laughs> play the um the D and D arcade game? Um. I don't tower think. over tower over Mistara or shadow oh, over Mistara. No, I'm familiar with it. I don't. I didn't really play it. I don't play video games, but I I, 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 I am familiar with it. And Mistara is an excellent setting. And it's from the, a D setting, yeah. Well, the, the the cleric in there was really like this kind of like it, it was. I mean, it was it was like a really big guy. Uh, you know, instead of the the uh, a sword, he just had like a big mace or whatever. But he was still like clearly a warrior. So that that was cool. But okay, so you know this this thing like okay so. Uh, hang on, hang on. Let me let me oh, add sorry, one good. thing though. That yeah, you said, Fifth Edition is a really great game. I would say, Fifth Edition is a game that does a really good job of what it's meant to do, which is to have a very broad appeal. I wouldn't say it's a it's a great game. I'd say it's a game that is excellent at its job at being able to draw in a whole bunch of people and being playable by a bunch of people. There's very few people who who didn't start with Fifth Edition that think it's the best version of D and D. But it's a version that almost everyone can tolerate playing, 
you know, and that that's the mm-hmm. difference. If you want a great game, you need to check out stuff like Lion and Dragon. Lion and Dragon is a great game, or Star Adventure, or uh, Arrows of Indra, or The Invisible College. You know, those are all games I've written, <laughs> and and those are games designed to do very specific things, but that are like you know, really kick-ass games for serious gamers. <laughs> so just just yeah. having my little plug in there while I can. No, no, yeah. Well, we we can go straight to that. And, and uh, I I totally agree. You know, that was the uh, you know the the feeling I got was like so like you know with D and D one, which I remember I got a yard sale or something. It was like uh, it was a little. And I don't know if this is uh, you know this is just my 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 taste, whatever, but uh, I get I don't know if OSR stuff is like this, but it was just a little bit too. Um, you know, they say like roguelike or something like, um, your character was just really, really fragile, you know, like two hit points. There's no use to even name him, et cetera. But then, you know, um, once you get like version three in past, you're, you're like, you're a Mary Sue character. You can't die. You're, you're, you only exist to, to, you know, uh, save the world, et cetera. And so I like number two, where it was kind of in between, you know, and, yeah. and I, 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 I reading your, your, your books are excellent. We, uh, I, I've got two of them. Um, they're very, they're very well thought out. They're, they're informed by your, your history which, background. Which, which do you have? I think you said you had Dark Albion. What's, what's the other one you had? Dark Albion and uh, let me see, uh, Cults of Chaos. Oh, Cults of Chaos. Yeah, that's for generating evil, evil groups for adventures in Dark Albion or elsewhere. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, I have the the Dark Albion, the Rose War, and in the Cults of Chaos, and, and yeah. the Cults of Chaos. And uh, they're they're, uh, they're excellent. The 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 Rose War stuff is is really cool. I, I really like this this um this take you have. I guess it, it's it's kind of like that that show on HBO. I didn't watch or whatever. What what was that that show that Game was kind of Thrones. Mm-hmm. like early Game of Thrones? Well, I guess where Game it was based on the was War of the Roses. Like the novel series Game of Thrones was based on the War of the Roses. Right. Mm-hmm. So obviously there's going to be a lot in common, right? And definitely a lot of people have said if you want to run a Game of Thrones campaign uh, in uh, in RPGs. What the best system to use is Lion and Dragon, and the best setting is uh, is Dark Albion. And it's because obviously they they have the same um, they have the same foundation in the War of the Roses. Well, you know, I I, I was sort of scared off before the beginning looking at OSR stuff because I thought it was like D and D one where like you know a lot of those dungeons and stuff there there's really no I really don't get a feel. I, by the way, I, I, but I, I never read any of these edition one like campaign settings or whatever, like Greyhawk or whatever. But I can't imagine having a campaign setting in one of these worlds so dangerous and stuff. But you've got a really fleshed out world here. It's not just this this thing. Like, um, I, do you know what I mean in terms of like you ever read those like those really old modules like uh, um. Uh, I read some of them when they first came out. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You, do you know what I mean? They're, 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 like I, I couldn't imagine like having like this 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 uh. A well thought out world in this and because it was just too dangerous and and well, like video gaming and stuff you know okay let me this, this is going to take a little bit to explain here obviously sure. role playing games it evolved out of miniature war games right in the 1960s 1970s there was a big boom in miniature war gaming where people were like recreating first it was like recreating napoleonic battles or you know uh the uh, American Civil War battles were very popular, sometimes World War II battles with using miniature figures and, and complicated rules, right? But they was like, you were playing an army. It's like Warhammer, but with, you know, historical things. And then they started adding other 
you know, elements to it. Like, you know, especially when the the um, Lord of the Rings books became popular, they started adding more fantasy elements to create fantasy battles and things like that. But they were still war games. Um, and then, you know, what what changed is that certain people started getting the idea of having like um, campaigns where you have a mixture of um, armies with certain hero figures and those hero figures if they survive battles you could play multiple battles over a whole war campaign and those figures could become more powerful and then they they came into the idea of that well there could be you could talk about like the politics of different kingdoms that are having these battles and like there might be people there might be characters that are important that are that are doing certain things and you can do like political maneuvers and so it became more complex as war games um, and then somebody came up with the idea, which was really two different people, Dave Arneson and Gary Gygax, who were both war gamers from the Midwest, um, who who kind of independently came up with it in slightly different ways. And then they got together and figured out how to do it really right, which was to say doing a game where you're not running a whole army, you're just running those one guys, those hero guys doing adventures. And the adventures, um, in the case of of Gary Gygax, were being done inside dungeon complexes, which were, uh, sorry, the, the adventures were being done inside dungeon complexes, which were uh, something that, that Gygax was inspired by certain fantasy novels that he'd been reading and things like that. Um, and Dave Arneson was having adventures that were in overland areas in this world that he'd created, this kind of fantasy world he'd created for for war games but that he was now using for for these kind of role-playing proto role-playing games they came together they made dungeons and dragons and so the early dungeons and dragons products were products that were made for um having adventures in because gygax was the one that ended up taking control of the company adventures inside these large dungeons where you'd go through them and they were still in the very early ages they were they were still kind of like a war game but you're playing just one character right and so like you weren't really worried too much about the development of that character you're worried about him surviving the dungeon getting treasure becoming tougher and just like you say like the roguelike computer games which were based off of that right um yeah i, I yeah i'm especially thinking of stuff like tomb of horror stuff like that yeah 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 and they were they're were often meant to be like tests to see you know how many adventures can we kill right um, mm -hmm. But this started to evolve fairly early on uh, with certain products, you know, Greyhawk, the setting that Gary Gygax created, and they started to have more adventures that were involving plots beyond um, the, the dungeon. And players, groups of players of Dungeons and Dragons started saying, well, what's happening outside the dungeon, right? And like, what's happening with, with the world around us, right? And then starting to have this interaction with the world. And, it, and, and especially that influence that Arneson had of creating a world started to become more important fairly early on so you know by the time certainly by the time uh stuff like dragonlance and the forgotten realms came along suddenly role playing was about playing in a world now the thing about having in the early editions and indeed in most of the osr you still have characters at low levels are a lot weaker they're not meant to be heroes off the bat this is the heroic journey right so they start off the idea is the characters are relatively novices and they're they're trying to survive and so obviously a lot of them are going to die along the way and the reason that in later editions they start with characters already being much more competent and much harder to kill is largely a question of impatience. Um, like mm. they did a study about this with fifth edition and the average, you know, a lot of these fifth edition books nowadays are coming out as these campaign books where you have like 
10 adventures or 12 adventures or 15 adventures, right? But what they've actually found out is that the average 5th edition Dungeons & Dragons campaign lasts six sessions. And that means that half of all Dungeons & Dragons campaigns last less than six sessions. So people are not sticking around. They're doing one-shots. They're, you know, so they need their low-level characters to be competent because they're not really getting into campaign play. But Dungeons & Dragons was designed, and especially by the time of, like, first edition when that came out it was designed to be like have incredible sophistication but you had to get there through campaign play because the only way you get to immersion is by playing a lot i always tell people if you haven't played an rpg the same rpg campaign for you know at least six months you really don't have an idea of what the full potential of role-playing games are and if you haven't played for two years you haven't really had the full experience of immersion because it takes yeah. time for that world to go from being this fake world that you have with fake characters in it into becoming a living world with living characters in it. And, and that's, that's why, you know, these games go from level one to level 36 or whatever, you know, like it's because uh, that buildup is what ends up developing a fully fleshed world. Yeah. I, I did get that. Feel- so I just want to say that, that, I, that feeling isn't impossible from uh, uh, first edition. No, I got, you I get got that from it, right. You get moments of it, right? But it, when you're mm. playing, like I'm running a game called World of the Last. What uh, it I, I put out the campaign book for. It's called World of the Last Sun, um, and that's a campaign that I've been running um, once every two weeks for about six hours a session for the last ten years, right? And the <laughs> level of, of sophistication that that world has now is just unbelievable, right? And it's just like a, it's it's incredibly alive, you know. Um, so like there, there's something that happens by, by long-term play that you don't get from short-term play and you can't fake it. You can't fake it by making like, and you know this because if you make a character and you say, okay, I'm going to make a new character, but I'm going to make this character 10th level, that 10th level character that you make from scratch is not going to look anything like a 10th level character that has played through all 10 levels and not in a, not in a cheating sort of way. Right. But in an actually playing by session by session and going up the way that you're meant to go up. Right. Yeah, he's gonna be he's gonna be covered with scars and he's, the, yeah, you know the tenth level character made from scratch is gonna look in some way fake. Yeah, the, you know that 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 feeling of uh, uh, I, I feel like second edition had, but first edition had totally. Uh, I got that from um, playing the Keep on the Borderlands, and uh, I thought that was a really great module because uh, you know, like when you when you have the you know the, these these new modern modules or you know the, these things where they. I think what you're talking about when you, you, you can't fake it, et cetera, is that, you know, uh, the Keep on the Borderlands, it, it assumed that you could not really make the players do what you wanted them to do. And that that's really like what, you know, the best stuff comes from that. Yeah. Where That's that's what we call, we call that sandbox play. And sandbox play is a very big feature of the OSR. Of You know, the OSR, by the way, is the design movement that I largely write in. And, there's a, and, and it's the biggest and most successful design movement in RPGs right now one of the most successful in history. Um, and it's it's grounded on these principles of immersion and, and it's all games that are based on the core original rules of Dungeons and Dragons, right? It started as a movement that was meant to just reprint cloned versions, right? Versions with the serial numbers filed off of the old rules that weren't available anymore. Now, now those old rules are available again because of print on demand. So that became kind of superfluous. But then very quickly, some people started making new rules, new sets of rules 
that were Dungeons and Dragons, but changed in some way to do something a little different, right? Like to make a grittier version of Dungeons and Dragons or to make a version that was more like weird fantasy or one that was more, you know, serious or, you know, all kinds of different variants. And then people like, and, and, and I was one of the ones that started this with Arrows of Indra. Then there, there was the third wave of the OSR, which was to create settings like Arrows of Indra or like Dark Albion and make rules that work specifically for that setting that are that are Dungeons and Dragons, but Dungeons and Dragons changed in a very in very important ways, still compatible with all other D and D stuff, but um, but changed in a way that fits that particular setting and the tropes of that setting, right? And that's that's where the OSR has really started to to become, you know, um, really spectacular as far as a design school, and and so like these um, these games. Part of the the setup of them, because we're, we're, you were talking about like your low level characters tend to die. Yeah, they do, right? But the idea is you you make you you don't you're not super attached to your low level characters. But then you get one that survives and he makes his way through to level two, level three, level four, level five, level seven, level ten, right? And now suddenly you're super attached to that one, right? And that one is the one that becomes a living character and it becomes something that that makes it uh, more special. The lack of mortality in later edition games is really terrible because like if, if you could just if you know that unless you have a total party kill if one character survives you can just tr drag everybody's corpse back to town and they'll be re resurrected that that destroys all the skin in the game right suddenly there's no there's no threat you know <laughs> yeah and um you know in, in second edition they had those rules that i can't remember if it was like ninth level or whatever where you get like the stronghold <laughs> yeah. and all these soldiers under you and stuff. And like, I never wanted to play to pass that part. You know, that, that wasn't interesting to me uh, at all. Well, that part can become very interesting domain level play because that's like your character is now like usually what you would do in a campaign at that point, it can depend, right? Because you can have like, you know, the characters can choose to not do that and just keep being really high level adventures. But that's set up mainly so that you have a more sophisticated campaign. You could presume that you know you've got a campaign that's lasted several years at that point. And so what you have is that the first generation of heroes from that campaign are now, you could say, like semi-retired, right? There you use them for the adventures that have like these really big epic things, but then you make like new characters that are adventuring in this world and continuing in the same world where the other characters are there still doing stuff, but not necessarily always the heroes of the of the specific sessions that you're running you know and so suddenly you're playing more than one character at a time not at the same time but in the same world and doing different stuff with those different characters it becomes a very it, that adds to the aspect of the living world right like that that you know you still have you know your that character your your former character is still around maybe he's the one that's sending the new characters uh off on their jobs and everything you know on, on their missions you know that that's brilliant i never thought of that because you know in your book you you said that uh, what you recommend is um, you, you say class is very important in the Middle Ages, and that you would re you recommend that uh, you know people they I, I don't know if they alternate or whatever, but in the, the same I didn't think of it that they're in the same world creating stories in the same universe, but but you said that they, that you recommend they they like sort of alternate between uh, someone of uh, you know uh, a noble class and then a commoner. Yeah, in my original Dark Albion campaign, which also lasted about seven and a half years, by the way, in that campaign, 
every every player had two characters and and in every session they would decide which of the two characters they would play you know and you sometimes i would suggest that they play one or the other right and so those mm -hmm. characters would advance at different rates and sometimes one of them would die right but then you still had another guy that was still going and you started another new guy at level one and they just kept going along right and so they would they would be doing different things and they'd be in different places in the world or sometimes they'd be close by but sometimes they'd be in very different places and uh you know they would they would end up having very different kinds of adventures so it allows the development of the world to become more sophisticated and also gives the character different the player different options of, of what they want to play so some people really strongly preferred playing only one of their two characters and the other one was basically a backup whereas others preferred to have both of them kind of advancing together at different you know alternating sessions you know let's say i want to play dark albion and i don't know anything about osr maybe i don't even know i don't know whether to say that they don't know anything about dnd well okay let's just just do that let's say someone they don't know anything about dnd but they can read they have they have a decent brain on their shoulders how many people do they need what do they need to buy and what what, what could they expect well, you know, okay, most people who, who get into the OSR have played at least some D&D at some point in their life, right? But also, there's a lot of people, you know, the type of people who become gamers also play a lot of video games. And I mean, if you've ever played, you know, th there's a lot of video games that the design of video games is based on D&D's mechanics, right? Like literal ones like the Forgotten Realms ones, Pool of Radiance and stuff like that. Um, you mentioned the one of the Mistara one. Um, but like, you know, that format is something very common. So people kind of know a little bit about like ability scores and hit points and stuff like that. All those basics from video game play too. Right. Um, so, you know, you, you've got certain, uh, you, you're, it, it's a lot easier nowadays than it would have been like to introduce D and D to someone in the 1970s where there wasn't that context. Right. And now a lot of fantasy is based on D&D, ironically, right? Which is like really weird because D&D was originally a pastiche of a bunch of fantasy novels, right? Um, yeah. Well, By the well, way, that is, <laughs> that is funny because like um, we, we were reading about that the other day that like, you know, stuff like Vance is, is very important. D&D, &D. Vance yeah. is, is, is um, he's highly influenced by this guy who was like a Confederate slave owner and stuff and um, it, it, it's it's weird that it, it's not as Tolkieny as you would as you would imagine. You know, imagine imagine yeah, it's like 1975, and you're trying to explain like a guy with a mullet and a T-bird, like what an orc is. <laughs> Tolkien had a big influence on early D and D because a lot of people liked Tolkien. A lot of fantasy gamers liked Tolkien, but Gary Gygax specifically. He was a huge fan of Jack Vance, of Fritz Lieber, who wrote Lankmar. Um, he was somewhat of a fan of like Conan and stuff like that, Robert E. Howard, right? Um, and then a number of other authors as well, right? But 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 especially Lieber and Vance were big influences on him, you know. And so like that whole thing about wizards memorize spells that comes from Jack Vance. It's it's not quite the same, but it's it, that's clearly where he got the inspiration for it. Um, it is. In like almost every other tradition, the thing where you, I guess you get like reagents and you, you know, like uh, you have like this almost like a stuff we see in Western media is like a demonic summoning thing. Is that how magic works in like almost everything else? In in what everything else? What do you mean? Well, so, you know, in D&D, &D, you, you got a book and I, you, you study a book yeah, at night. And you sort of wake up and you just sort of have this many spells. They're like bullets locked in a chamber. Yeah. 
and I've heard that this is like this is sort of uh, peculiar. What, well, what yeah, would... it is. It is unusual, but I mean, in other other RPGs, we're also influenced by D and D. So in some of them, you have you don't have a spell book, but you have like mana points, and you learn you know a certain number of spells, and you spend mana points to do it. Or yeah, there's a lot of different systems of magic, right? Now, in what I've done in Lion and Dragon, for example, is I it's it's D and D based, but I took out the entire magic system and replaced it with a magic system that is. Uh, inspired by how people in the Middle Ages actually thought magic worked, right? Like magic that was based off of the, you know, the medieval grimoires and stuff like that, you know? And so it's, and and like every bit of magic that's in that rule book is uh, magic that, that people actually wrote about in the Middle Ages. <laughs> yeah. So you can change it if you don't, if you don't really like the system, you can change it. But as to your original question about, um, you know, what do you need to get into the OSR? Well, it's 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 not a lot, really. I mean, let's say if, if I was saying if you wanted to get into <coughs> into my most successful game in the OSR, which is Lion and Dragon, uh, you'd need that rule book and that's it. And, you know, if you wanted a setting book for it, you'd get Dark Albion uh, or the newest one that I've made now, which is Sword and Caravan, which is a, a game that is uh, for Lion and Dragon, it's like Dark Albion, but it's set in the in the Third Crusade and on the Silk Road. So it's uh, for adventures in the Middle East and the the Near East, you know. Um, so it, it you know you could, uh, but the the you just have the the that rule book contains everything you need. Lion and Dragon contains everything you need as far as playing the characters and knowing the rules. And, uh, you know, you can use the setting book for, you know, generating adventures and something like Cults of Chaos if you want um, something that helps you make uh, adventure scenarios um, for yourself. Um, and, you know, that, that's that's basically it. That's that's what you would need. But part of the fun of the OSR is that the OSR has got like a tons of authors and tons of products and all those products are compatible with each other because they're all based on D&D at the core, right? So, so you could be using, and even, and you know, I do this, everybody I know does this in the OSR, right? You're running a campaign of one thing, let's say Lion and Dragon, but you might be using material from somebody else's products, from someone else's OSR book, like not their main rule book, or maybe you are, maybe you're taking stuff out of their main rule book that you like, right? Like some of their magic items, some of their monsters, some of their magical techniques or things like that, or something from a character class, or you're taking their adventures that they've published for their book. You can use it with the book you have, right? You can, you can run other people's adventures in your system. You can uh, use stuff from other settings uh, and, and just bring them into your setting, right? So that, that compatibility makes it super open for somebody who wants to mix and match stuff. Excellent. Excellent. And um, I, um, um, I don't know if this might be controversial for you, but um, I like to. Uh, there, there are certainly games that I don't play uh, that I didn't play that I liked reading the source books. Uh huh. Um, you know, in particular, I, I don't want to be super specific, but uh, you know, I, we, we do a lot of Roman history stuff, and there is one thing in uh, like a to me an important part of uh, Roman history that I have never seen uh, explained really well except for uh, the one D&D source book on it. And, and he actually, uh, you know, he gives sources on where he got his stuff from. I went and looked it up in the Oxford uh, uh, Classical Dictionary. But uh, in other words, these books are can be very enjoyable to read. Uh, your, yours are, are really cool. Uh, if, what, what if I'm listening to this and it's unlikely I will ever play D&D, &D, 
But uh, I like this interview, and I'm interested in this kind of this stuff. And uh, I just want one of these these books just to to read for the the. It's hard to to give people explanation of what it's like to read one of these source books, but um, uh, they are they are cool. They have cool art and stuff. So, uh, which one? If I would just want one of these books, and I'm not sure I'll ever play, but I want something to be fun to read. Which one would you get? Well, um, probably setting books are the ones that are cool to read, right? So, like you. You know, there's a lot of setting books that are for fantasy worlds that the author has created. And some of those are really good and some of them are so-so. It depends, right? Um, I mean, I know that there's a lot of people that, that, you know, read novels based in the Forgotten Realms that never played D&D, right? So if you have the Forgotten Realms um, campaign setting, ideally the, the early one, the one from first edition or the second edition one, not the later ones, you get a whole bunch of lore in there that are part of the novels that you've read, right? Um, and then after that's the historical ones, right? I mean, I guess mine, my books tend to be good in that way because I was trained as a historian and I have, you know, all my books, some people have said that, you know, after, after playing one of my historical campaigns, it's like they went through a college course or something about it, right? They know all kinds of stuff about it that they, that they never would have learned otherwise, you know? So like Dark Albion is full of real historical facts about England in the in the 15th century in the in the War of the Roses, right? And uh, Sword and Caravan, my my newest setting book, it, it details what the world was like from 1190 to 1220 in the Middle East and the, and all across the Silk Road. You get details of every city that was on the Silk Road, of all the different cultures, of who are the power players there, and a chronology of the events that happened during that period, which start with the Third Crusade and end with Genghis Khan doing an apocalyptic conquest of the entire region, you know? So awesome. that's pretty cool. And if you want to learn about that period of history, if you want to know everything you need to know about the Third Crusade and about what the Silk Road was like at its very peak, and then how it was absolutely destroyed by Genghis Khan. <laughs> yeah, that, that's, a, that's a book where you're going to learn everything about the culture and the people that were in it, and the myths and the monsters and the legends of it. It's all the magical stuff that's in those books are not stuff I've made up. They're stuff I've researched from out of historical sources, right? So there's some really weird monsters in there, right? There's some weird monsters in in Lion and Dragon too, because they're not the monsters from like modern fantasy versions. Like there's there's giants and trolls in Lion and Dragon, but they're not the giants and trolls that you're used to from D&D. They're how they were, look what those monsters were like in the Middle Ages, you know, what people thought those monsters were like in the Middle Ages. And so they're slightly different, you know, and sometimes very different. And it's the same thing with, with uh, you know, um, Arrows of Indra, which is set in uh, the the... India of the ancient Indian myths of the Mahabharata, right? So you want an education in like the whole story of the epic Indian myth, the Mahabharata, the story of of uh, the great war uh, of cousins and the and uh, the the story of Krishna, you know, and and all of the incredible mythology that's in there um, and what that world was like. You can get that book and you'll you'll get all of that out of it, even if you're not a gamer, you know. That's that's excellent. Now, and if someone wanted to, to want to buy these, where do you get, where do you get the? Um, uh, sometimes uh, authors get way more if they if they buy it in one venue or the other. Do you care if they buy it on Amazon or drive through? Do you have a preference for that? Well, you know, I'm I'm a kind of a unique 
games are not unique, but very rare these days in that I make a full-time living off of RPGs, but I don't have my own publishing company. I'm not a self-publisher. I've never published a single one of my books. I always have because I was already kind of famous <laughs> when I started this. Um, I've always had other publishers that wanted to publish my books and I don't really want to do all the publishing start. I don't want to make up the art and the layout and all that. I want really professional people to do that. So I've always gotten into deals with these people to, with different publishers to publish different books of mine, right? So some of my books are available on Amazon, right? Lion, uh, Lion and Dragon and Dark Albion and Cults of Chaos and The Invisible College, all of those and, and Sword and Caravan. You can get all those from Amazon. You can also get those and some of my other books, which certain publishers that don't work with Amazon have from drivethroughrpg.com. That's drive, T-H-R-U-R-P-G.com, right? Uh, all one word, um, which is which is the biggest uh, independent uh, RPG sales location, right? Like all the small companies have um, sales there where you can get PDF or print on demand, right? So... So some of my books you can only get on drive-thru, others you can get on drive-thru or Amazon, and I'm okay with you getting them either place. Some of the publishers, because drive-thru to be competitive, they offer a slightly better percentage. So like I know, for example, if you buy Sword and Caravan on, on Amazon, I get a cut. It's a slightly smaller cut than if you bought it on drivethroughrpg.com, but it's not gonna kill me if it's easier for you to use Amazon, right? It's just that some of my products you can't get on Amazon. You can only get them on drive-thru. That's, that's excellent. Well, we'll have all the links up there and I'll just close out with, with a question, um, you know, based on your, your, your persecution in this hobby and your, your knowledge of the middle ages um, is, is it okay. So, you know, uh, <laughs> you talked about one of your books that's uh, to some level, it's, it's illegal for a commoner to be an asshole to a, to a noble in the middle ages, right? Correct. It's called is, petit, petit Trison. It's a little treason. It is, doesn't that, uh, is it too far to say that's a little bit what we have going on today with, um, uh, I don't know, woke people, protected groups, et cetera. Like it's, it's just literally illegal to be an asshole. To them. Um, yeah, that's, I never thought about that before, but it is, it's not an inaccurate parallel, right? The idea is they believe that they are the chosen ones, right? And so anybody <laughs> who questions them is automatically evil and they want to criminalize it, right? Like that's why you know, <laughs> they've invented this thing called hate speech, which is not unlike the, the charge of petit trison, right? That, that you're, <laughs> you know, a lot. And that's good. You know, there's another thing in the Middle Ages, you, if you've got Dark Albion, you might remember this, there are sumptuary laws, right? So if you're um, in the Middle Ages, if you were a commoner, you weren't allowed to wear certain types of colors because those mm. colors were reserved for the aristocracy, right? <laughs> if you weren't a shirt with a certain color and you weren't an aristocrat, you'd be in violation of those laws and you could get, you know, fined or flogged or, or worse, right? <laughs> um, and I think we're probably going to see stuff like that coming from the, the left where they're going to say, well, you know what? From now on, most people won't be allowed to eat meat anymore because it's bad for the environment. Right? <laughs> And you can't really own your own car because, you know, the fossil fuels, but important people can own cars, right? We'll be able to still own cars, right? And we'll still be able to fly in jets, but you can't, right? Yeah, John, <laughs> John Kerry in his, in his jet, yeah. They're trying to create a new aristocracy, right, uh, based on very undemocratic principles. <laughs> okay, uh, that's, that's excellent. Okay, uh, uh, thank you. Well, thank you very much. 